For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We're coming up on the end of the year. So let's see if I can save you some money on your tax bill this year. <laughs> if you haven't been thinking about it this year, you might be caught saying, what am I going to do? And today I'm going to try to help you solve that problem. Good morning. My name is Joshua Sheets, and this is the Radical Personal Finance Podcast for today, Wednesday, December 17, 2014. And today, let's dig into some tax planning ideas. As I mentioned on a previous show, this is the time of year that if you pay any attention to the financial websites, or if you pay attention to your financial section in your newspaper, or if if you look at your Facebook news feed or, or whatever, you're likely to get some articles showing up that are going to be essentially end-of-the-year tax planning ideas. And that's good. They're useful. And that's what this show today that I'm creating for you is about. But the challenge with doing this kind of planning at the end of the year is that it's way too late. It's way too late to start talking about you know, what you're going to actually do for 2014. Good tax planning. Frankly, you should be working on good tax planning for 2015 right now and getting started with that. Now, I know it's that's nice to say in theory and in practice, it's a completely different uh, world. But that is really important that you do it in advance. Good planning in advance is always going to be more effective than last-minute planning. But doesn't mean that last-minute planning isn't helpful. I do want to keep this in context, and that's why I started with the previous show where I didn't focus on you know how to save taxes, but rather I just focused on uh, what the back you know on on end of the year goal planning. And so that previous show that if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to episode 116, which was the show on how to plan your financial goals for 2015. You can find that at radicalpersonalfinance.com/slash116 if you're interested in that show. And the reason that I did that is because really more than anything, the end of the year tax planning articles and things like that are essentially clickbait where it's how can I get you to click on a tax and, or click on a, on a button and most people read them and don't do anything with them. But what I described in episode 116 is something that you can actually do something with. Put this in context. When you see these articles – Remember that 43 point – and here's why I started with 116. Remember, 43.3% of Americans pay zero federal income taxes. Zero. So almost half of our society pays zero federal income taxes. And many of those who do pay some income, federal income taxes – don't pay all that much. Now, that's not a number that accounts for the total tax burden – so it's certainly more than 43 excuse me certainly less than 43.3% who pay zero uh, employment taxes but it does count for federal income taxes and that's really the only thing that the end of the year counts for is for your federal income taxes so the other problem with these end of the year articles and end of the year planning is end of the year planning is really tough because essentially you have to have money and the way a, an income tax system works is you're penalized for productivity. So the only way to uh, essentially avoid the taxes is to be less productive. And the end of the year is too late for that. 
you should have chosen in advance to be less productive, or to get rid of your money. And with the way that most Americans uh, conduct their financial lives, there's not a lot of money left at the end of the year to get rid of. So again, that's why I started with uh, the other show. But for those of you who listen to this show, hopefully you're not in that situation. Hopefully you are in a situation of overflowing with excess money and excess savings. And now you're trying to figure out what do you, what do I do? What do I do? So that's what today's show is about. Here's the, the basic rule of tax planning. You got to get rid of your income. So remember, Income taxes, you're penalized for making money. As uh, one of my favorite quotes, William Feather once said, the reward of energy, enterprise, and thrift is taxes. So you got to get rid of the money. You got to get rid of the money through one of the three fundamental tax planning strategies, a timing strategy, a conversion strategy, or a shifting strategy. So with a timing strategy, that's most popular at this time of year, where you're going to try to defer paying the tax towards the future. However, you might also bring it forward. And that's why this is pretty tough, is you've got to figure out what you should do with it. Most end-of-the-year articles that you read, and including the majority of today's show, are about deferring income. But you've got to figure out whether it's better for you to defer it or to actually accelerate it and bring it forward. In general... Normally, we like to postpone paying the tax because you can pay it later with cheaper dollars. So as inflation makes our dollars cheaper, if you have a tax liability of of $10, if you pay it in a later year, you'll be able to pay it with cheaper dollars. So we usually want to postpone tax so we can pay it later with cheaper dollars. Also, we might be able to more productively use the money than using it to pay taxes. So remember that any money that you can save on tax is comparable to receiving, in essence, an interest-free loan that you can use today. If you can avoid paying $10,000 in tax, that's $10,000 extra that you can use for for your purposes and you're not paying any interest on the money. So that's really valuable. However... Remember that you might actually want to not defer income. You might want to actually go ahead and bring it forward and pay the taxes today. And there could be many reasons. Your situation might change. You might be in a low-income bracket at the moment, and you expect yourself to be in a higher-income bracket down the road. Well, in that situation, it's better to go ahead and pay the tax now in the lower bracket. Generally, tax rates and brackets could change. So rates on all taxpayers could change. They could go up. They could go down. Also, brackets could change. The, the brackets could expand. They can contract. And so you've got to kind of figure out what you're concerned with and what you're, actually, what you're actually doing. So think through it carefully. Before you just go about deferring everything, think through it. Uh, but with that said, with that caveat, because that is very important, let's get into some ideas and see if I can give you some some tips that might be helping you. And this is going to be very useful. At least one of you is probably facing a big bill and you need some last-minute help. So I think I'm going, to, I'm going to try to give you that help. As you're going through today's show, if you hear something, if you hear me talk about something that you don't understand, don't worry about it. Don't try to grasp every specific detail. If I say something like um, make a Section 179 expense election 
and you don't know what a Section 179 expense election is, don't worry about it. Just grasp the concept if you can. If not, come on back later, and it'll start to make sense when we talk about it at another time. Or if I talk about cash basis accounting versus accrual basis accounting in your business, if you don't understand what that means, don't worry about it. Uh, spend a little time, do a quick web search, and if you can, if you can find uh, some information on it, that might help you. But learning financial information is well done in an iterative process. So by constantly exposing yourself to information that's beyond your current understanding, over time, your understanding will rise. And there's always going to be something you don't understand. There are so many things that I read that I don't understand. And it's always been that way. But over time, when I look back now, I can see that over the past years, my understanding has increased. And so what confused me five years ago to now is just old hat. I don't even have to think about it. So uh, listen to today's show, but don't worry if I throw you off on a detail or two. Let's start with the easiest, most well-known ways to uh, do some last-minute planning. And then we'll move to some of the more esoteric. Let's start with retirement accounts. Now, we're all familiar with the concept of deferring income through a retirement account. And the challenge is, however, that most of the retirement accounts that most of us participate in, meaning 401ks and 403bs, these don't really help you at the end of the year because you have to make your, actually make your contributions as you go. So if you arrive here in December and you've been putting uh, you know, 3% of your income aside into a 401k plan and you recognize that all of a sudden you have a, a higher bonus payment and you want to put an extra $10,000 aside, generally you can't do that because those accounts have to be funded throughout the year. So unless you can talk to your HR department, and this is my tip for you, uh, I'm probably a little late in giving this to you. It's December 17 as I record this. So unless you can talk to, talk to your HR department and can defer your entire last income and change your uh, election really quickly, uh, defer your entire last paycheck excuse me, into the account, you're probably not going to be able to get much excess money into the 401k or into your 403b. So those aren't really useful. But... You can use some other accounts. If you're an individual, you can use an IRA. And the useful thing about the IRA is that you don't have to make your contributions before the end of the year. You can actually make your contributions at any time up until you file your tax return. So here it is, December 2014. If you file your return in April 2015, you have all the way up until the time that you file your return to make that IRA contribution. So that can be a very useful last-minute planning tool for you. Now, for those of you who are newbies to the world of finance, let me give you a quick brush-up on the difference between your two different types of IRAs. There is a traditional IRA and there's a Roth IRA. The traditional IRA permits you to go ahead and deduct the income now and then later pay the tax. The Roth IRA allows you to pay the tax now and deduct the income later. Now, it's important for you to recognize that if everything is equal, if your income is equal, is net now is equal to your income at retirement, if you're in the same tax bracket and the tax rates are the same now and in retirement, then those two options are mathematically identical. This is a commonly held misconception that people say, well, one is better than another. No, they're actually identical if your tax rates and tax brackets are the same. 
many people, if not most, will be in a lower income tax bracket and have at a, and thus paying tax at a lower rate in retirement. That's why, in general, we would usually choose to prefer a traditional IRA instead of a Roth IRA. Uh, but that's not always true, and you have to look at an individual situation. There are other advantages and disadvantages, and I won't go into into all of those details in uh, right now. In the year 2014, your maximum contribution to those two accounts is you can contribute up to $5,500. And you can do that if you're married for each, both you and your spouse. Also, if you're older than the age of 50, don't forget that you have an additional $1,000 catch-up contribution that's available to you. So you can contribute to that account as much as $6,500 for you. And if you have a spouse who is also uh, over 50, you can contribute up to $6,500. Age 50 is the magic date for that catch-up contribution. So don't forget about those catch-up contributions. Many people, when they're making that transition, they, they have, they're not accustomed to making that extra $1,000 contribution, and they forget about that. Now, I want to spend just a moment going over the contribution limits. Almost every single person that I've ever <laughs> ever met with or worked with is confused by the limits. And even when I was a new financial advisor, I was confused for the first couple of years of practicing, and I was the blind leading the blind. And so I was confused myself. So let me explain to you the contribution limits, and I'll try to do it in a way that makes sense. There are two entirely different sets of contribution limits, and we'll start with the simpler one. We'll start with the Roth IRA contribution limits. The Roth IRA is simple because it's purely based upon your income. Your ability to contribute to a Roth IRA is exclusively focused on how much your adjusted gross income is. How much is your AGI? That's what governs whether or not you can contribute to a Roth IRA. And those numbers for the year 2014, if you are married filing jointly or a qualified widow or widower, if your income is below $181,000, your AGI is below $181,000, then you can contribute a full contribution to a Roth IRA. There's a phase-out for the next $10,000 of income, and then if you make more than $191,000, you're not permitted to contribute to a Roth IRA. Uh, I'm going to ignore primarily the phase-outs. If you're on the bracket, if you're on the margin, so if I say $181,000, go and look up the chart and see if you're in the phase-out uh, amount uh, because it's not a all of these all of these income limits have a certain range, and it will get very tedious if I go through each of them. If you are single head of household or married filing separately, and you didn't live with your spouse at any time during the year, then the limit for you is $114,000 of income. So if your AGI is less than $114,000 and you're single, you can contribute to the uh, Roth IRA. The gotcha is if you are married filing separately and you lived with your spouse at any time during the year, the limit is $10,000. So you can't make more than $10,000 of income. Uh, that's the most penalized uh, filing status uh, of all is if you're married filing separately. There are a bunch of gotchas in the, in the code about that, and this is one of them. So with the Roth IRA, you need you to simply remember what your income is. Single, less than $114,000. Married, $181,000. That's all. That's all you need to know. Now, a traditional IRA has a different set of scenarios. And this different set of scenarios is driven by whether or not you are covered by a retirement plan at work. And that's one of the key distinctions. 
Your ability to contribute to the Roth is based upon your income. However, your ability to contribute to an IRA does not have to do with your income. Anybody can contribute to a traditional IRA. But your ability to deduct your contribution is governed by how much money you made and whether or not you are, gov- whether or not you are covered by an employer plan. If you are not covered by a retirement plan at work, so if you, if you are just an individual and you only have an IRA, no matter how much money you make, does not matter, you can take a full deduction of your, uh, you can take a full deduction of your uh, contribution up to the contribution limit, up to the $5,500 and then the extra $1,000 of catch up. If you, See, this is why people get confused on it because it's hard for me to explain my way through. It's much better in a visual in a visual presentation, I think. Let me just forge on though and, and see if I can do it. If you are covered by a retirement plan at work, then if your income as single is less than $61,000 or if your income as married filing jointly is less than $98,000, then you can go ahead and deduct your contributions to a traditional IRA. There's also a separate question where if you have a spouse that is covered by a retirement plan. So for example, if you do not have a if you're not covered by a retirement plan, uh, but you have a spouse who is, then you have to work through those numbers as well. The best resource for this is go to the IRS website and just look at their charts and work your way through the charts and figure out the scenario that applies to you. It's too difficult for me to convey uh, on the show here at the moment. However, remember that the traditional IRA and the Roth IRA, those limits are based upon the – so one is based upon income. The other is based partly upon income but also partly upon employment status and marital status. So that is a key distinction for you. When you get into IRAs, there is one – there are a few little tricks that you can use. And so the simplest one is you might want to contribute to both types of accounts. The limit on them is the same. So your limit of $5,500, that's the same whether you do a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA. You can't contribute more than $5,500. But you may, depending on your individual tax return, you may find that you are well served by making a $2,500 contribution to a traditional IRA and a $3,000 contribution to a Roth IRA. So consider that and consider calculating that Uh, that might serve you. If you are over the income limits, then there is something that you should be aware of that's commonly called the backdoor Roth IRA. And simplistically, let's say that you make a half a million bucks a year. You can contribute $5,000 into a traditional IRA. You're not permitted to deduct the contributions, but you, uh, assuming that you're covered by an employer plan, but you can go ahead and convert that to a Roth IRA in the following year, and now you are able to have the equivalent of a Roth IRA. That's useful. Uh, I think it's much less useful than it's often talked about simply because when you are making $500,000 a year, the ability to get $5,000 into a tax-sheltered account is much lower on your priority scale. You're much more concerned about the $500,000. But that is one little trick for those of you who can do it. A couple other little tricks on IRAs. Uh, it is possible if you have expenses within the IRA 
And this would be useful. Many of you will have never thought about this, but for those of you who are using something like a self-directed IRA and you're paying your fees for custodianship or commissions or fees in a more transparent manner, then it is possible for you to make a separate payment to the account for the payment of those expenses. So to pay your custodian fees or your brokerage commissions or any fees, you can make a special payment to the account for those fees and you will not be deemed as going over the contribution limits. Uh, that may be important to some of you, especially if you're pursuing a strategy of some kind that does involve uh, brokerage commissions or fees or higher than normal custodian fees. Uh, consider that. That can be useful. And so if you have $300 of fees, you can go ahead and make your $5,500 contribution and write a $300 check to pay for the payment of those fees. And that will maximize your usage of the account. I hope that helps you. There are two other types of retirement accounts that are also useful. And the reason why I'm going through these accounts here is because these are the ones that you can use at the end of the year or the following year. You might consider, if you are self-employed or if you run a business, you might consider establishing what is known either as an HR10 or a KEO plan, or separately, you might consider establishing a SEP IRA. Now, a KEO plan is a qualified plan that allows you to set up a formula for your business and you can either do for your contributions, and you can either do this as a defined benefit plan or as a defined contribution plan. The benefit to a KEO plan is that it permits you to contribute a much higher dollar amount to the account than uh, than. Uh, than an IRA does. So your maximum contributions are limited to 20% of your earned income or $52,000. Basically comes out to is 20% of your earned income uh, minus your deduction for half of your self-employment payroll tax. So it basically comes out to 25% of your net earned income uh, after you take that deduction. So you can get 25% of your net earned income or $52,000 into this account. The Keo plans were very popular for people in the past, for self-employed people, uh, because it was there was a distinction in the tax law between corporate uh, plans that were established and plans that could be established by self-employed people. There was a tax law change in 2001, and so now the Keo plans have largely been replaced by the SEP IRA. Uh, and and I have, in the years of doing planning, I've never seen a Keo plan. I've always seen a SEP IRA. And the reason is that they have the same contribution limits, but the SEP IRA paperwork is much simpler. The Keo plan requires a full plan document to be written and created. There might be reasons still to do it, but it is more complicated. Uh, a Keo plan, if you're going to establish one, it has to be established by December 31. It doesn't have to be funded by December 31, but it has to be established. So the plan has to be actually put into place by the end of the year. Uh, one of, By the way, one of the advantages, and I've never seen one actually do it because of this, but the Keo plan, you could set it up so that you could borrow against it, where you can't borrow against a SEP IRA. SEP IRA stands for Simplified Employee Pension Account, uh, Simplified Employee Pension Plan, and these were established with a goal of being simplified. So this is these accounts, I, I think of them as an accountant's best friend. I've never met a CPA or an accountant who wasn't an expert on SEP IRAs. And the reason is they can be established after the end of the tax year and they can be funded after the end of the tax year. So you can go in and sit down with your accountant to prepare your taxes on April 1st or on April 14th 
and you can download the standard form from the IRA IRS website and you can establish your plan or almost all brokerage uh, companies that you will be working with will have the form available, their standard form that's based on the IRS website. It's 40, 50 pages. You print it out, you sign it, you write the check, and now you've gone ahead and created up to a $52,000 deduction for the year that you need it. So that can be very, very useful. What I would encourage you to remember is remember that you can have one of these plans in addition to your 401k or in addition to your IRA. So uh, if you, for example, are covered by a 401k at work, but you have some outside self-employment income, you can go ahead and you can establish one of these types of plans and that might help you to avoid some taxes. You'll have to be aware, aware if you have employees that you need to cover your employees as well, depending on how it's structured. There's all kinds of detailed rules, but that's the simple thing that you need to know at the end of the year. Those might be your outs. So talk with your advisor, talk with your accountant. Uh, finally, of the accounts here is oh, actually one little one other little trick on IRAs and retirement plans. Look to see if you might be eligible for a savers credit. So the savers credit is an interesting tax credit that you can get if you're eligible for. In order to stimulate low-income earners to save, then you can get a a tax credit of 50% of the first $2,000 that you save in a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or a 401k. And that's a direct tax credit. So remember, credits are always better than deductions. This is a nice tax credit. And that's in addition to the deductions that you save on the taxes by making the contribution. Unfortunately, this is really only available if you have a very low adjusted gross income. To get the full 50% credit, your AGI has to be less than $18,000. So that's not a huge amount. Uh, It's also not available for people who are under the age of 18 or who are full-time students or who are dependents that can be claimed on another person's tax return. But uh, you might be able to get uh, you might be able to get some benefit from that. Check the chart. the The phase outs of this change. The fifty percent contribution changes depending whether married, filing jointly, head of household, or single or otherwise. Then there's a twenty percent credit and a ten percent credit. Essentially, if you make over sixty thousand dollars married, filing jointly, or over thirty thousand dollars for single, then that credit is not available to you. But if you are down at the lower end of the earned income, check out the savers credit and see if you can qualify for it. If you can qualify for it, even if you can't afford to actually save in a retirement account, you may be able, if you're willing to be aggressive, um, you may be able to actually uh, use it just purely for the tax credit. So you can make a contribution, for example, on December 31 of this year into a Roth IRA and then take the distribution out of the Roth IRA in January of next year. And because you're doing that in a Roth IRA, there's no tax that would be due unless you had a gain in the account and then you would owe tax on the gain. But you could just take that basis right out and you could spend that yourself. So only the income and the gain would be taxed. And you could get a tax credit, again, for as much as 2000 bucks, So uh, it's a one-time deal, but that might be worth it for you if you find yourself down in that scenario. You can't afford to necessarily save the money for the long term, but that might help you to get a last-minute tax credit. So consider that. The last retirement account, uh, it's not actually a retirement account, but it fits well into my outline here, is don't forget about the health savings account, the HSA. 
If you're covered by a high deductible health plan for your medical insurance at work, uh, at work or in your business, you can make an HSA contribution into your health savings account um, anytime up until you file your return. Your contribution limits for 2014 are $3,300 for an individual and $6,550 for family coverage. And then there's an additional $1,000 catch-up contribution for 55 and over. So if you're over 55, that will be useful to you. Uh, if you're doing the, the, the account in this way, it's not going to save you on your employment taxes, but it will save you on your income taxes. The way to save the employment taxes is that your HSA has to be funded out of your paycheck so that your employer can actually or deduct it so it's not so that you're not charged those employment tax, taxes each each month. So this won't save you on the 7.65% uh, Medicare and Social Security taxes, but it will save you on your income taxes. So consider the HSA. That can also be a useful way of taking an above-the-line deduction that will be helpful for you. Let's get out of the accounts because uh, those are a little bit dry to work through, but those are the most those are the simplest, easiest in some ways, straight, most straightforward ways to do it. But look for a way to defer income without using a tax account. So here are some ideas for you. Uh, first, just simply consider deferring income. And this one's a little bit tricky if you are an employee. So you can't do this. As, let's say that you have, you know you're, you're an employee of a corporation and your employer is going to pay you a Christmas bonus. But you take the last two weeks of the year off and you do this knowing that the check's going to be sitting on, in your mailbox at work. And so you just don't go into work and pick it up. Well, that doesn't do it for you. So you actually have um, – uh, you have what's called constructive receipt of the income. And so you're going to be taxed on the income in the year 2014, even though you didn't pick up the check until you went back to work on January, which is this year, 5th, 4th, something like that. So uh, that's not going to help you. Uh, constructive receipt, let me explain real quick. Anytime you're dealing with federal income taxes, then the, the doctrine of constructive receipt is used to determine when a cash basis taxpayer has received gross income. And you as an individual are always a cash basis taxpayer. A taxpayer is subject to tax in the current year if he or she has unrestricted control in determining when items of income will or should be paid. So unlike actual receipt where you actually have to get the check – Constructive receipt does not require physical possession of the item to have income or physical possession of the income to actually count it. The fact that you could have gone to the office and picked it up means that you received it, you constructively received it, even though you didn't actually receive it. So that doesn't that's not super helpful to defer a Christmas bonus. But you actually can do this technically if you plan ahead. So let's say that you are aware of a large bonus that you're going to be receiving. You could enter into a binding agreement with your employer uh, and to defer the bonus uh, that you would receive in December until January. Now, you have to actually enter into the agreement before the bonus is constructively received. So uh, that would that could work. I've actually never seen it done. I've read about it in tax books. I've never seen it done myself, but I can see how it could be done. So if you're in some scenario where you know there's a good bonus that, uh, that, that you're likely to get and you would prefer because of your own personal plans to receive it in a later year, then that might be a useful technique for you. Probably too late for this year, but file it away for future years. The more useful way to defer income is for those of you who are business owners or running a business of your own of some kind. And 
it's very simple if you are a cash basis taxpayer. It's very simple to just simply delay billing your clients until late December. If you don't send out your invoices until late December, your clients are certainly not going to get them and spin them around unless they're trying to do their own tax planning. They're certainly not going to get them and spin them around and send them back to you before the end of the year. So in that situation, you won't actually receive payment until the following year. And because of that, you're not going to pay any taxes. Uh, Now, remember, I said it a moment ago, but remember, it only works if you're a cash basis taxpayer. If you're an accrual basis taxpayer in your business, you have to report the income when it is earned, not when it is actually received. So that's the same, by the way, for most of these business deductions. So be careful there. But many of you who are listening, who are running small businesses or self-employed, then you'll be running, who are trying to figure these tax things out for yourself, you're likely to be a cash basis taxpayer. Uh, If you have income from the sale of properties, let's say you're selling something large here at the end of the year, then consider doing an installment sale, and that will allow you to defer some of the income to a different tax year. That might be useful for you if you're selling something in which you have a profit that you're going to be paying tax on. Consider an installment sale. Uh, Also, the big one, however, is consider bringing forward expenses. So consider accelerating your expenses to lower your net income upon which you will be taxed. In business, think through any end-of-the-year transactions that you need to pay. So you might clear out your accounts payable. You might make any – for example, this one for me is – I've been planning out my 2015 conference schedule. And so what what conferences am I going to go to? Uh, and so I could go ahead and make the payments to those conferences. And then I, that would allow me to go ahead and recognize the expense in this year for the conference that I go to in March or in June, something like that. I can go ahead and recognize that expense. Uh, you might be able to do this with something like your insurance payments. So go ahead and make your insurance payments. One of the most um, useful ones is things like marketing and advertising expenses. If you're in a business where you know that if you do a certain marketing campaign and you purchase a certain amount of advertising, that it will result in a in an inflow of orders, then that can be super compelling to, for you to say, let me go ahead and buy up a bunch of marketing or advertising costs, whether that's mailings or ads or whatever it is. Let me go ahead and do that. Pay for it in December. And then you'll reap the rewards with the increased sales next year. Uh, and you can do that, especially when you're building a business. You can do that year after year after year. At some point in time, you probably need to get the income out of the business, but that, that depends on the nature of your own of your own business. Do remember, however, that when you are making expenses and accelerating expenses, that you do need to follow the 12-month rule. And so there is, for these types of expenses, there are two aspects to the 12-month rule. In general, you can't deduct the full amount of any advance payments that covers more than 12 months out. So let's say, for example, you can't ta- say, you can't say I'm going to pay up my insurance premiums for the next three years and go ahead and make that check today and have that be deductible. Rather, you can only deduct – if you do that and it's more than 12 months, you can only deduct the benefits that are um, – that are going to be received within that tax year. And so you would have to figure it out on a pro rata basis. However, there is an also another exception is that the kind of the, the more specific scenario to that rule, it's not necessarily 12 months from the expense, but whatever expense that you make has to be, uh, uh, it has to, 
it has to be done. It can't, it can't, the benefit can't expend, it can't go for longer than 12 months after the, the right or benefit that you purchased begins or the end of the next tax year. So end of the tax year after the tax year in which the payment is paid. So let's say, for example, that would be a could be a way that I could do it. If I, you know, here I'm on December 15, and if I go ahead and purchase an insurance policy that starts on January 1 and goes to Jan- December 31, as long as it's not more than 12 months from today when I go ahead and pay for it, and as long as it doesn't go into the tax year for 2016, then I can go ahead and deduct it. So be careful with your with your 12-month expenses. But as long as you follow that, you should be fine as far as making some of those payments and just splitting the tax year. Uh, remember also that we just want to make sure that you're going based upon your business's tax year, which may or may not be December 31. Uh, that's super useful. And another uh, another thought on the business tax expenses is consider also that you can purchase equipment. So in general, equipment purchases aren't usually going to help you because when you make purchases of durable equipment, then you have to depreciate that expense and you can't just simply take uh, an expense payment now. Uh, Now, remember, however, that you can make an election to expense a certain amount of it. So that's called a Section 179 election, and it was pretty good in the years past when it was super high. This year in 2014, it's it's only $25,000. But remember that you can actually purchase equipment, expense $25,000 worth of it this year, and then go ahead and take your depreciation after that. So then you go ahead and depreciate it as you are accustomed to doing. And so that may be useful for you with any equipment that you need for business use, any tangible personal property that you're going to use in business more than 50% of the time, any business vehicles, uh, especially uh, large large business vehicles in excess of 6,000 pounds that you can actually do, uh, vehicle uh, that you actually can use the Section 179 expense allowances for, research that carefully because that depends on the type of vehicle. Uh, Computers, maybe off-the-shelf software, office furniture, office equipment, um, those types of things are eligible for that Section 179 expense. So if you have uh, an extra $25,000 of profit that you need to wipe out, then if you need to buy some sort of equipment, then you can go ahead and buy it, and that gives you, and if you can expense the $25,000, you can wipe out the profit. So that might be a useful useful thing for you. When you're making expenses, remember that it's probably foolhardy to, um, <laughs> there's no 100% tax bracket. So you have to spend money in order to take a deduction. It may or may not be good. The only rational reason to do it would be if the money that you're spending, you expect to make more in the future that you'll be able to use. So don't just spend money for the sake of spending money. But if it improves your, improves your business, then that would be a wise course of action. Now, for individuals in yourself as an individual taxpayer – you may still be able to use the idea of accelerating some of your expenses. So a couple ideas for you. Consider bunching certain expenses together here at the end of the year if you might be able to take a deduction. The one that is most uh, is the, probably the most prevalent would be something like medical expenses. If you had a lot of medical expenses this year, so for example, last year, my wife and I, we had a lot of medical expenses when we had a baby. Uh, if you had a lot of medical expenses, consider going ahead and adding other medical expenses now and getting them done. So if you were in a year where you had a baby and you had a large out-of-pocket medical expense, then go ahead at the end of the year, if you have the money, go ahead and get your dental expenses, uh, your eye expenses, uh, you know, dental care, eye care, whatever it need. 
taken care of. You might, you might uh, pay, go ahead and lump in and pay the annual premium on your long-term care insurance. And so that might allow you to bunch enough medical expenses together to allow you to exceed the 10% of uh, AGI uh, limit on medical expenses to where you can actually deduct some of your medical expenses. And these would be things that you're going to have to get done anyway, your dental cleanings, your, your eye care, uh, your insurance payments. But just by bunching them, instead of having, let's say, $5,000 of expenses in 2014 and $5,000 of expenses in 2015, whereby none of that is deductible, perhaps if you can bunch all $10,000 here in 2014, then all of it will be deducted, excuse me, then the portion that's over the 10% of AGI limit will actually be deductible. So you can get the itemized deduction for that. That might be useful for you. Also consider accelerating any tax payments that you owe. So real estate taxes, personal property taxes, state and local income taxes, pay them now in order to make sure that you can deduct them now. And so if you pay them next year, then you get to deduct them next year. But since these are going to be due anyway, go ahead and bunch them together and pay them now. This can also be useful whether or not you often itemize your deductions or standardize or take the standard deduction. Um, in some years, you can, by, by doing this bunching strategy, in some years, you can bring together enough deductions to where it's in your benefit to itemize. And then the following year, which is a low year, then you go ahead and take the standard deduction. The next year, you go ahead and, and itemize. And so you might be near that, uh, you might be near that limit. So consider that as well. Uh, if you're going to do accelerate your tax payments, be careful if you are concerned with, uh, with the alternative minimum tax, be careful with your AMT there and uh, run your calculations carefully. Consider, we all know this one, because <laughs> this is the time of year that we receive plenty of charitable solicitations, but consider making your charitable contributions and bunch them in the years that you can fully use them based upon the deduction limits for charitable contributions. So sometimes that might be uh, it would be as simple as going ahead and writing your check before the end of the year. Uh, but then also, if you've made a large charitable commitment, maybe, then go ahead and try to use those deductions in years when you're going to be able to use them fully. So if you've made a, a certain total amount and you're, you're, you're fulfilling your commitment to a charitable organization over a five-year period, use those, use those deductions in the years where they're most useful for you. Uh, if you are making charitable contributions, be intelligent about how you do it, especially with regard to good tax planning. Don't think only in terms of cash. This uh, is one, depending on the the size of the you know, depending on the nature of your financial of your finances, just don't always give something always in cash. Uh, if you have appreciated property that you've held for over twelve months, then you can go ahead and donate. If the charity will accept it, you can donate the appreciated property. And so, if you have uh, ten thousand dollars worth of stock that has appreciated from five thousand dollars, and you want to give ten thousand dollars to the charity, it's probably better for you to give the ten thousand dollars of stock. You'll get your full deduction for the fair market value of the stock, the $10,000, and that will allow you to avoid paying tax on the gain to the $5,000. The charity receives the stock, they sell it at the fair market value, and then they get their cash. But that gives you a more advantageous charitable contribution than if you were just simply to give the $10,000 of cash upon which you've already paid income tax. So that could be useful for you. Consider that. If you have lost property, 
then the rule is re reversed. With the rule with lost property, let's say that you purchased stock for $10,000 and it's worth $5,000 and you and you sell it or, or you decided that it's it's it, you're going to sell it and avoid you don't want to keep it any longer. Well, in that situation, what you always want to do there is you want to sell it for $5,000, take the $5,000 loss against your tax and then go ahead and donate the cash to the charity. So make it up and sell the, give them you know, the $5,000 out of your savings account. So just be smart about that. Oftentimes giving property, uh, if the charity will accept it, might be, be help, more helpful to you, especially if it's appreciated property, might be more helpful to you than giving cash. And you can double, basically get a double, double use out of it. Um, with regard to timing of these expenses and deductions, Remember that you can take deductions for items that you pay by check in the current year, even if you mail the check on New Year's Eve. As long as there's no reason why when the business or person charity receives it on January the 3rd uh, that they can't cash the check, then you can go ahead and take the deduction this year. If you're doing that and if it's a sizable uh, amount that you need, make sure to, I would get it um, – What's it called with the post office or the registered mail or whatever where they give you the, the receipt for it? That's I would do that to make sure you have that date stamp and keep it with your records. Credit card charges will also be a, can also be taken this year. So let's say that you go out and you purchase some some items uh, in order that you're going to be deducting and you purchase those items in December. Well, you probably won't receive the credit card bill due until January. So that'll allow you to go ahead and take the deduction in this year and then pay it next year. So that can be useful in some situations. The two final sections, that concludes uh, kind of the timing of, of, defer of income and expenses. The other uh, couple of ideas for you uh, are with regard to relationships. And so there are various relationships that are going to affect your uh, your tax planning. First is uh, probably the most uh, not useful is the marital relationship. So if you're planning a wedding at the end of the year or, or like New Year's Day, my wife and I actually, we got married on New Year's Day. And uh, so if you're planning something like that, calculate your taxes and see you know when you should actually have the marriage done. Uh, doesn't have to be the same day necessarily as the wedding itself. So we certainly could have legally gotten married on December 31 and then had our wedding celebration on January 1. And if we were married on December 31, then that would allow us to file as married filing jointly for that year that we got married. Uh, in general, marriage is only going to diminish your taxes if one spouse works or earns almost all the income. Uh, if both spouses work and earn relatively good incomes, then marriage is actually going to boost your taxes. So be a good idea. Just calculate it and see which is m more in your interest uh, to do. Uh, with regard, the the big one though, however, is with regard to dependency and the number of dependents that you can claim for your dependency exemptions. Most people, when they think about dependents, actually think purely about kids, and that may be helpful. So, most of the time, you know, children are are not something that you do last minute tax planning with. Generally, they arrive over a period of of many months, and you don't have a lot of control over when they come. If you do have something where, for example, you might have a plan C-section, uh, this happened to a family member of mine, you have a plan C-section and the safe zone for safe delivery covers, you know, the end of last week of December and the first week of January, you might go ahead and schedule it on December 31 so that you can go ahead and take your uh, child credits and your dependency exemptions. But uh, that's <laughs> that'll apply to maybe 
to not many people. The major benefit, though, that I've thought of for, for some of you might be if you're caring for other dependents who aren't your kids. And I'm thinking of parents or grandparents that you might be caring for. Now, when you get to dependency exemptions, there are a bunch of detailed rules and some different tests that you need to uh, need to pass. So, for example, to claim a dependency exemption for a qualifying relative who's not a child, then there's the dependent taxpayer test, the joint return test, the citizenship test, the not a qualifying child test, the member of a household or relationship test, the gross income test, and the support test. So some tests, and there's some detailed rules that you should focus on and read through and talk through with your advisor. But the one I want to focus on is if you're providing support for your dependent, and support can mean different things. And this might be for kids or this might be for uh, other relatives as well or even other non-relatives. But support would include amounts that are spent for food, shelter, clothing, medical and dental care, education, church contributions, child care expenses, wedding apparel and receptions, capital items, and similar items. So... The key here is that support is measured by what is spent, not as what is not what is available. So if you are wanting to claim your child as a dependent, it doesn't really matter if your child earns $10,000 and then saves half of it. As long as you spend $5,001 on them in support, then you've actually contributed more than one half of their support, and that will allow you to take the dependency exemption. So there are a number of different strategies that can that can happen here because you might, for example, you might uh, make some payments for things that your child needs or you might support them with the purchase at the year end of a car, a capital item like that, perhaps paying for, again, wedding apparel and receptions, education costs, things like that, going ahead and making those payments. And however, if you were caring for a parent, then if you're contributing more than half of their support, that might allow you to claim them as a dependent. So, for example, let's say that you've been planning to give your mother, or your father, uh, you know, if my, you know, if my father or mother were in a nursing home and I was, and I knew they needed something, and I was going to go ahead and contribute to the cost of that, but then at the end of the year, I want to go ahead and give, uh, give her or or him. Uh, some kind of item for their needs, so a, a large television for their room, for example. Well, as long as I track that, if I provide more than 50% of their support, then I can go ahead and possibly, as long as I fit the other qualifications, claim them as a dependent. And the key would be actually calculating this for yourself and seeing if if your ability to claim them as a dependent is going to be in their best is is in your best interest and in their best interest and so there are a number of different ways that you could do this but it might even be for some people it can be worth it to compensate if if for example you are going to claim somebody as a dependent and that's going to and you're in a higher bracket, this is one of those income shifting strategies, kind of partly, is this might allow you, you might reimburse them for some of the tax cost to, to them and just go ahead and allow them to, so that you can, uh, so that you can actually uh, claim the expense. So you want to calculate it out, calculate it out depending on who's got what bracket and, 
and see. And that might, for again, for many of you who are p- caring for parents or grandparents, then that can be a, a really valuable scenario. And considering that you need to provide that care regardless, then make sure that you do it in a way that's going to, where you're going to allow the tax code to subsidize your expense. Oh, and I forgot. One of the things when you're figuring out your dependents' income, remember that you can exclude any type of exempt income. And exempt income would be things like including Social Security benefits, tax-exempt interest, uh, etc. So the key there is your dependent can still so if my mother or father were in a nursing home they can doesn't matter how much social security re- income they receive that's a tax that's exempt for the purpose of calculating the dependency the key is how much actually gets uh, paid for their support and it's based upon the money spent not the money received so that's this that's how we pass the support test so do some research if you think that might uh, apply to you and see if you can see if you can work a way into that very briefly on investment tax planning i don't want to go into details on investment tax planning i just want to mention one concept i've seen over the last uh, year i would say two years a lot more interest in the concept of tax loss harvesting for investment planning. And I think this has been primarily due to some of the robo-advisors have made it very easy and efficient to actually uh, to actually, um, you know, harvest your, your tax losses. Uh, it's not always easy to go through and figure out, well, what can I sell to defer my gains? Uh, I just want to emphasize that there's, that's, that's really great and that's valuable and that's useful. I want to emphasize that the flip side to that is you also want to make sure that your harvest sometimes harvest your gains. And so the key, if you can establish a bookkeeping system that's going to excuse me, allow you to be uh, detail-oriented enough to actually be able to um, – if you can establish a bookkeeping system, bookkeeping system that's going to permit you to do these kinds of calculations in advance, sometimes you might want to go ahead and harvest gains. And so let's say that you've purchased uh, let's say that you've purchased uh, 10 th- you've purchased stock and you currently have a tax basis of uh, $5,000 in the stock and the market value is $10,000. Well, if you have some extra uh, money sitting on your tax return at a relatively low bracket or you know at something at a relatively low bracket you might might be in your best interest to go ahead and sell some of the stock in order to and then buy it back in order to increase your gain excuse me increase your basis and so you want to always essentially calculate both sides now this is easy to say in theory and it's hard to do in practice <laughs> at least it's harder to do in practice. But go and calculate it and make sure that you're not just focusing on tax loss harvesting, but that you're actually focusing on tax gain harvesting and essentially over time ratcheting up your basis in your investments however you can. And uh, I hope that's helpful to you. Those are the primary ideas that I wanted to share with you. I hope they're helpful. And the key is good tax planning is going to make a profound difference in your financial picture. The biggest expense that most of us face is tax. And it's a, it's a difficult it's a difficult subject to tackle because there's so many aspects of it. There's so many different kinds of tax. You know, we're just talking today about federal income tax planning. There are so many moving variables. Our tax system is so incredibly complicated that it's very difficult. It's so daunting for me to figure out how do I teach through this <laughs> 
I mean, I get stretched by it. How do I teach through this in a way that's actually going to be helpful? So I hope, you know, again, I hope this has been helpful. Always look and just think about your specific situation because that's the key. There's going to be doing tax planning for um, end of the year planning for a young, uh, you know, single dad or single mom with a moderate income and a lot of expenses, there are certain ideas or tactics that might help. But that's very different than if you're doing tax planning for a you know somebody with a $50 million estate and we're trying to move assets out of the estate. There are a lot of moving parts. So keep absorbing the information. Then just keep looking at your situation. Uh, anytime there is an anomaly, for example, a market anomaly, if we have a, a, a large major um, uh, price decline and the value of an asset or a large increase or absurdly low interest rates or absurdly high interest rates, then those are the kinds of things sometimes you can ex- you can exploit that. So for example, if markets are down, then a couple of years ago, that was when uh, you know if you were an estate planner, you were constantly busy getting assets out because you want to get them out when they're at a low valuation so you can get them out when when they're basically destroyed in value where they can rise and it's and the money is out of your estate. So there are a lot of moving parts. I hope that this is <laughs> I hope this has been useful and uh, I'd love some feedback, but the key is you got to just look at your situation. Remember though that we're coming up on 2015 and this is the time to be start planning for your 2015 plans. Focus on goals, focus on income, but don't forget about tax plans as well. <laughs> You just heard what was actually the original show that I had recorded today. However, you are privileged to get a little bit of a bonus episode here. <laughs> I recorded that show today as I record this now. It is December 17th, 3.20 p.m. I recorded that show this morning. And I had to leave my house and leave my house and uh, for an appointment. And I was planning to get the show uploaded here this afternoon. And then I find out all of a sudden through one of my news feeds that the law has changed or is in the process of changing. And let me clarify what specifically in, is wrong in the show that I just recorded. And then I'm going to rant a little bit because this is incredibly frustrating. So I find out through an email uh, from one of the services and things that I subscribe to that now as of last night, Tuesday, December 16, 2014, there is a bill that is passed by the Senate and the Senate votes to pass the so-called, what's this called, H.R. 5771, Tax Increase Prevention Act of 2014. So it was passed by the Senate late last or last night and as of right now, as I record this, it's on its way to the president's desk, I guess, and theoretically he's going to sign it. So I'm looking at this thing, and the big thing that I got wrong was I made a special note in the show that you just heard about the Section 179 ability to expense allowance, where for the last few years that expense allowance had been you were able to expense as much as $500,000 of your upfront equipment costs in a single year, and then it was limited to $25,000 for this year. So then here we are at December 7th, December 16th when this bill is passed. It's not been signed by the president yet that I know. I'm looking at govtrack.us, and it doesn't indicate that it's been signed by the president yet. So here we, sit, here we are sitting here in December, and they're about to pass this bill evidently, which is, among other things, is going to extend – the five hundred thousand dollars section one seventy nine um, upfront expensing limits, 
the full title here, to amend the Internal Revenue Code of 1986 to extend certain expiring provisions and make technical corrections. And it goes on. So I'm looking at the bill. I'm not going to go through every section in here. Uh, but uh, it goes, I'm looking at all of the things that are expiring and, and it covers 100% of the Section 179 stuff and that extends that out. So that's what you need to know is basically that right now in December, you can uh, – you can if you if you need to spend a bunch of money now you don't you can't only just take a twenty five thousand dollar expense allowance you can actually maybe if the president signs this thing uh, you can go and and take a five hundred thousand dollar expense allowance so the first thing you should do is call your uh, call your accountant and if you need to purchase some equipment or something to knock off a bill this year this might be a time to do it so talk to your accountant I, I can't give any further advice than that but this is just. <sighs> This is so frustrating. We have a nation that is run by a bunch of clowns and two-year-old clowns that can't eh, – I'm bad at political rants because I've signed off of all the political nonsense. I've, I've, I'm done. Like I, I've quit. Just leave me alone and I will – I'm speechless. I can't even. I can't even do a political rant. Most of my friends, I'm good at doing political ranting. It's just, it's so frustrating the way that tax policy is done in this country. It's so frustrating. If you look back at it, not. I mean, it reminds me. If you go back to 2012, when you had at the end of 2012, we're approaching the you know the the fiscal cliff. Uh, you know, the tax Armageddon. And there was going to be the biggest overnight increase in uh, taxes in the history of the country. Uh, the actual, I mean, the tax rates would have jumped massively when this was be- the Bush tax cuts had expired a couple of years earlier. Everything was extended, everything was going to be forced through. And so the maximum tax ba- a year ago, uh, the maximum tax on dividends was scheduled to jump from 15% to as much as 43.5%. Um, four out of five U.S. households would have faced uh, an average of $3,700 more in taxes. It was basically going to be an $8 trillion tax increase. And what was so what is so frustrating is everybody knew what needed to be done. Everybody knew what was going to be done. Everybody knew, like, it was. it's all known in advance exactly what's going to happen. Everyone's going to talk a big talk, you know, the left and the right, the Democrats are going to talk a big talk about not about not raising about raising taxes and the Republicans are going to talk a big talk about not raising taxes. In the end, they're all liars and they do exactly the same thing. But they have to wait till after the elections. So instead of anybody being able to actually plan on anything and actually run their business with a bit of confidence, I mean, how, if I were advising a business owner, how do you sit here and say, oh, all of a sudden I told you you had a $25,000 um, limit on your 179 expense right now, but now you got a $500,000 limit? How do you plan in this kind of ent- environment? It is utterly – it is – anyway. The world we live in is just ridiculous. In a, you know, when here I, when you can't even expect here at December, you know, I'm already late on a show like this. I'd prepared my outline carefully. I'd researched everything to be very precise, and here I am, um, here I am trying to give a precise show to help people. And then you've got the Congress clowns move around, and the end of December change the rules again. And you look here and. Uh, here, section 101, extension of deduction for certain expenses of elementary and secondary school teachers. Section 102, extension of exclusion from gross income of discharge of qualified principal residence indebtedness. So we got to pander to the people and 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 extend this stupid thing on on uh, 
allowing you to go through a short sale. What does that even do? If that's if that's what it is, what does this do for all the people who um, <laughs> their account advised them they were going to have to pay the tax? When you when you have debt that's forgiven to you, it's imputed income, it's phantom income, and we've got to protect the people and we've got to give a special deal to everyone in the housing crisis to avoid the tax. Section 103, extension of parity for employer-provided mass transit and parking benefits. Section 104, extension of mortgage insurance premiums tra- treated as qualified residence interest. Section 105, extension of deduction of state and local general sales taxes. I mean, it just goes on and on. The business tax extenders, extension of the research credits, 114, Indian employment tax credit, new market tax credit. And basically what all these things are is extensions of things that were uh, that were scheduled to expire. I haven't read the whole bill here. I'm just looking at the summary. <sighs> we live in a nation of incompetence, uh, incompetent rulers, and it would be great to get r- rid of every single one of them. I mean, maybe there's someone intelligent, but it is absurd. I, for, since I'm, if you if you want a little fun, I, I'll indulge myself. I usually don't rant on taxes, but this one has me annoyed just because. In a, in a, <laughs> I guess it passed last night, so technically I should have done my research this morning when my outline was already prepared. But <laughs> so I'm going to pull down one. Of, I've got one of my favorite books here, and this is I'll read a couple of things from Jeff Schnepper's. How to Pay Zero Taxes um, book. And he updates this. I have the 2015 edition. And he updates this thing every year. And in the front, he talks about what happened in each year. And just I'll just read a few of my favorites that that from the last few years. And hopefully, you'll get a kick out of this. And then, then I'll be done and be out of here. You would have been impressed. The original show was under under 60 minutes. So you would have been impressed with that. But let's, uh, let's pick a couple of fun ones here. So... Uh, from his section on 2012, um, so after that debacle of the fiscal cliff, uh, according to the Joint Committee on Taxation in March 2012, the prior cost of kicking the can down the road for tax cuts, extenders, estate tax, etc., through fiscal year 2012 was $967.7 billion in wasted dollars. Add to that decreased stability and the inability to properly budget into the future, and you have had a framework for economic impotence. Don't blame the IRS. Then then Commissioner Doug Shulman warned, if Congress can't act by the end of the year and even starts to think about retroactive legislation of things like the AMT, which have already expired, you could have a real disaster in the filing season when there is total confusion where some people are filing under one law and others under another. Congress finally passed the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012 to address these issues. And they do it on the day after um, 2012, January 1, 2013. Um, here are a couple others. From 2011. Actually, before I go to 2011, let's, let's, let's look at a couple of fun ones from 2013. So the Internal Revenue Service reportedly posted the Social Security number of tens of thousands of people on the Internet before taking it down wherein a whistleblower pointed out the mistakes. Approximately 1.45 million taxpayers who qualified for relief from tax penalties totaling close to $181 million were never told that they could get penalty abatement and never got it. Here's one of my favorites. The IRS could not provide documentation for $394,430 paid for labor hours. Point that out in your next audit. Uh, How about this one? The American Civil Liberties Union released documents showing that the IRS criminal division had been reading taxpayers' emails without a warrant in violation of the Fourth Amendment. That makes you feel good, doesn't it? 
And then there were the IRS parties. During one conference, more than $50,000 was spent on receptions, including 28 bottles of wine for 41 guests. Then there was the almost $4,000 spent on giveaway items, including footballs, $418 in kazoos, bathtub toy boats, and other novelty decorations. IRS credit cards were used to purchase romance novels, steaks, diet pills, and unspecified items from merchants affiliated with online pornography. Your tax money at work. The IRS spent about $50 million on 225 conferences during the three years between fiscal 2010 and 2012. The Small Business and Self-Employed Division spent $4.1 million alone on a single conference in Anaheim, California. You should have been there. Speaker fees for presentations such as, quote, how seemingly random combinations of ideas can drive radical innovation, close quote, totaled $135,350. One speaker was paid $17,000 to create six paintings. Three were donated to charity. Two were given to conference attendees. And the sixth was lost. Then there were the videos that cost $50,107 to produce. They included a dance video showing IRS employees learning the Cupid Shuffle and a Star Trek parody for which the set alone cost $2,400 and 11 hours of staff work, estimated to cost an additional $3,100. But they did get a one-minute finished video. We won't even talk about the IRS video parody of Gilligan's Island used to train 1,900 taxpayer-assistant employees in 400 locations nationwide. As Maynard G. Krebs would say, work? In addition to these large expenditures, the IRS spent $15,669 of your money on brief bags with free gifts and trinkets, $6,060 on lanyards and badge holders, $1,524 on engraved travel mugs and clocks, and $90 on sleeves for puzzle pieces. And then there were the political issues. The supposedly politically independent IRS was found to have targeted conservative groups seeking tax exemption for extra scrutiny. The TIGTA found the that's a taxpayer um, uh, uh, Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. The TIGTA found the inappropriate conduct, quote, inexcusable, and Attorney General Eric Holder, another liar, announced that criminal penalties may be sought in a Justice Department criminal investigation. Add that to the 24 IRS employees who were indicted for fraudulently fraudulently obtaining more than $250,000 in government benefits, and you have what some would call a rogue agency out of control. It didn't even go into the uh, lowest learned debacle. Uh, bunch of lies um let me pick out two or three of my other favorites and then that'll satisfy my desire to to express my emotions today there's a david letterman joke that the question is what's the difference between obama's cabinet and a penitentiary and the answer one is filled with tax evaders blackmailers and threats to society the other is for housing prisoners (laughs) it was the david letterman joke so a lot of people don't realize why i'll read just one of my favorites from 2009 and this uh, this is again this is jeff schnepper's writing here I'm beginning to understand now. The tax code is the holy grail, the answer to all our social and economic problems. If we have a problem, it can be solved through the tax code. Need to sell more cars? Simple. Make the sales tax on their purchase deductible, even for those taking the standard deduction, and create a clunkers credit. But then again, the government does own General Motors, doesn't it? Still, I stand by my argument. Your house went down in value? Stimulate the real estate market by making real estate taxes on a principal residence deductible, again, even for those taking the standard deduction. 
oil prices getting too high again? Stimulate green energy alternatives with credits that reduce your taxes on a dollar-for-dollar basis. On June 11, 2009, Representative Carolyn Maloney, Democrat from New York, introduced a bill that would give an employer a 50% tax credit on up to $10,000 for qualified breastfeeding promotion and support expenditures. Talk about milking the system. You, can, you can't say 2009 was a quiet year tax-wise. The Internal Revenue Service released a taxpayer attitude survey on February 2, 2009, which found that 89% of Americans think it unacceptable for people to cheat on their taxes. The other 11% appear to be headed for the president's cabinet. President Obama's pick to lead the Department of Health and Human Services, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, apologized for owing $140,000 in back taxes and interest. In 1998, he was quoted as saying, quote, make no mistake, tax cheaters cheat us all and the IRS should enforce our laws to the letter, close quote. The president's selection for the first chief performance officer for the federal government, Nancy Killiferg, failed to pay tax on her household help. Both had the good graces to withdraw from consideration. And then there was Ron Kirk, nominated to be the U.S. trade representative. He uh, forgot to report $37,000 in speaking fees assigned to a charity, but he managed to remember taking a deduction for $7,500 of the donation. And then there was $7,400 in pro basketball tickets without a business purpose. Cheating on his taxes didn't defer Timothy Geithner from becoming Treasury Secretary. His taxes were found to be underpaid in 2001, 2002, 2004, and 2005. What, nobody looked at 2003? But then again, who better to put in charge of the IRS than someone who requests a ruling on the law and then ignores it? But he did pay up when caught. Talk and Anyway, you get the point. And it's just, it's utterly absurd. There's actually an important quote in here that, uh, that he lists. And the quote is by... Uh, former commissioner of the IRS, Mark Everson, he says, frequent changes to the tax code and rising complexity are perhaps the greatest obstacles to reducing paperwork burden. I am concerned that tax law complexity may discourage taxpayers and adversely impact voluntary self-assessment that is at the heart of our tax system. And the the point is, self like self-reporting and self-assessment of taxes is indeed the heart of the tax system. And it's absurd to have things, I mean, to have things changing like this is absolutely absurd. We've had over 48 major tax law changes in the last 51 years. A couple of numbers here. Uh, 2013 return numbers directly from the IRS. The average taxpayer who files a Form 1040 needs 15 hours. Add a single rental property or a Schedule C for your business, and the hours jump to 24, and that's with about 91% filing with a computer. We spend more than 7.7 billion hours and over $350 billion each year complying with the tax code just to figure out what we owe. That's more hours than are used to build every car, van, truck, and airplane manufactured in America, and that's just your time. And our government wants your money as well. According to the Tax Foundation, the average taxpayer had to work 111 days until April 21, 2014 in order to earn enough to cover his federal, state, and local tax burden. They call it Tax Freedom Day. I call it Get Out of My Pocket Day. The group Americans for Tax Reform includes the cost of regulation. It's Cost of Government Day. Had us working for the government until July 6th. 
2014. I don't even know what to say. I don't know when people are going to wake up. And, you know, I do my best to try to, I try to stay level-headed and not not get too, uh, you know, fired up about stuff. And I don't get on a political bandwagon. But it's absolutely absurd. It's, it's it, the world we live in is absurd. And that, all of, remember, all of those uh, numbers, and I won't, I won't go into it. Things are going to change as time goes on, and obviously the key is to for us to look at our own situation and figure out what's right for us. Um, you have to you have to look at yourself. <laughs> this way, I'm way more sympathetic to the tax protesters than I've ever been. Um, I'm not there yet, but you never know. One of these days, I may join them. If I do, I'll go public with it from the beginning, and I'll write my letter to the IRS. Until then, I will. Um, Try to comply with their law that they change. This bill they passed last night, 174 pages. So how on earth is any – and that's just one one thing. The, the, the tax code is over right now. As it sits right now in 2014, it's over 70,000 pages. Over 70,000 pages and over 4 million words. That's the tax code that we have. I, it's it's very hard for me to comprehend how just a tiny little bit of intelligence and applied sense can't see that we can figure out a better way to to do it other than the the debacle that we have. So that's it for my show. <laughs> a little different ending than the previous ending. I just chopped off the last bit of of the other show. So a little bit different than I had planned, but I hope today's uh, uh, I hope today was was helpful to you. I guess I should add a another tax tip to all the last minute tax planning and say, well, you could just do what seems like half of probably I guess that'd be a little bit silly. And yes, I'm I'm not indulging. I'm not. These aren't careful logical arguments that I that I'm giving. Um, it's just simply a, a little bit of emotion. But I guess you could just uh, join some of the officials in government and just simply conveniently forget about half your income for the year, that would probably be pretty good. Uh, in fact, I encourage it. So if it works for them, you ought to, you ought to take it for yourself. Seems to, uh, seems to work well. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com, Twitter at RadicalPF, Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. Um, thank you for those of you who have joined the Irregulars program. Uh, consider joining if you've appreciated the information. If I've helped you save you some money, uh, consider joining the Irregulars. Details are at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash membership. Um, let's go out with one review here. Thank you for those of you who've been reading, who've been leaving me iTunes reviews. Uh, one review here from Lane. He says, uh, you will learn difficult topics explained with words, examples, guests, and other methods as required. You will learn for the, from this one. They're not short or always just a certain number of minutes, but the adjustment is worth the effort. So uh, another one here from, uh, oh, that one was from me. I reviewed my own show. I said, this show is awesome. It really helps make financial stuff make sense. Yes, it is my own show, and that's why it's so good. <laughs> so that was me reviewing my own show. Uh, thank you for the, leaving reviews on iTunes and on Stitcher. I appreciate it very much. And I wish each and every one of you a lovely day. Go out, and if you're running business, call your accountant and go spend an extra $475,000 and keep your money yourself. Forget about trying to keep up with the government.
Thank you for listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not and is not intended to be any form of financial advice. Please develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy. And consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow... Thanks for being here. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.